Hello and welcome. On behalf of CME Outfitter, I would like to welcome and thank you for joining us for the third in a series of four CMEO snacks titled Reinforcing Personalized Care for Uterine Fibroids, Updating Practices to Improve Outcome. The CME snack series is supported by an independent medical education grant from Pfizer. I am Dr. Ayman Al-Hindi, tenured professor and vice chair for research, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Chicago. I am also a gynecologist and minimally invasive surgeon at University of Chicago Medical Center. Health disparity in uterine fibroids is the primary focus of our research program. Our fibroid research program have been NIH funded for the last 22 years continuously. And I'm so proud that our program has received recently the 2023 Blossom Award by the Wide Dress Patient Advocacy Group. I am joined today by my distinguished colleague, Dr. Andrea Lucas. Uh, Dr. Lucas, can you please introduce yourself? Absolutely. Welcome, everyone, and thank you, Dr. Alhindi. My name's Andrea Lucas. I'm an OBGYN generalist. I was in academics at Duke for 10 years, but then left to form a private practice and a clinical research site. I've been a principal investigator in over 140 clinical trials. Um, I'm very practical. I have a, um, a clinical practice in addition to my research site, um, and I look forward to today's discussion. Thank you. To open the discussion today, let me review our learning objective. Integrate clinical management guidelines for uterine fibroids into practice. I think it's important for the audience to understand that um, there are significant gaps and barriers which have been uh, seen in the implementation of clinical guidelines into care. Unfortunately, the gaps in clinical guidelines uh, implementation lead to poor outcomes for our patient at every level. Gaps and barriers start with patient not being screened for uterine fibroids, followed by failure to be assessed for uterine fibroids, leading to diagnostic delay, and then the failure of receiving a diagnosis for uterine fibroids. This culminates into patients suffering with symptom longer, increased severity of their condition, and missing opportunities to offer less invasive treatment options. Dr. Lucas, what are your thoughts on clinical management guidelines on uterine fibroids currently? So I think truly most people don't use guidelines. Um, they are taught in an academic setting. Um, individuals may read them, but I think when OBGYNs go out into practice that they develop kind of their own algorithm. Some are more bent towards surgery, others maybe medical management. And I don't think that providers review guidelines and use them as much as they could. I agree. Uh, well said, Dr. Lucas. So ultimately, the first step to addressing uterine fibroids and beginning to inform our patients of potential uh, therapies early is through proper screening, which isn't even addressed in the clinical management guidelines. Dr. Lucas, would you please start by discussing some of the gaps and barriers that you have seen in screening 
in your practice and what providers can do to address these issues in, in their practice? Absolutely. So there's not one screening question or a questionnaire that has been incorporated into our practice. So I think a provider needs to have interest in asking the right questions and a curiosity to understand um, if an individual has symptoms related to fibroids. For instance, if someone presents and they say they have heavy periods and the provider doesn't ask questions about, uh, you know, would they feel pelvic pressure or, you know, how long are their periods? How many days do they last? Is there lower back pain? Do you have pain with intercourse? So some of the questions we need to ask in order to understand the burden a woman may experience with fibroids. Thank you so much, Dr. Lucas, for sharing that insight. I totally agree with you. Um, I would say, uh, and I know this uh, recording, uh, uh, this material is directed to provider, but I would say there's a mutual responsibility for early diagnosis on the patients and the providers as well. So from the patient side, as, as we all know, and we, we talked about this in multiple times before Dr. Lucas, there's a lot of normalization that happens from the patient side. So I would encourage patients to seek medical help with really any changes in their menstrual cycle routine. If the cycle is getting heavier, longer, uh, or they used to have regular cycles and now they are irregular, or they used to have regular cycles and now they have spotting in between. Any changes in your cycle, uh, in, I'm talking to the patient now, I would really encourage them to seek medical help and not normalize their symptom. Now, from the provider side, I would really encourage everybody uh, to keep low threshold of using transvaginal ultrasound. Uh, it's a very simple, non-invasive, safe uh, imaging uh, technology, and it's very accurate in diagnosing uterine fibroids as small as uh, half a centimeter. Um, that hopefully will improve uh, early diagnosis and avoid using empiric, nonspecific, uh, evidence-based therapies. And I know we're probably going to come back and touch on that again, Dr. Lucas. So uh, noting that screening isn't even fully appreciated in the guidelines, uh, they do address assessment strategy. So Dr. Lucas, would you please uh, be so kind uh, to discuss some of the guidelines and best practices for assessment of four uterine fibroids, considering the medical history, the exam, diagnostic techniques, and baseline lab studies. Certainly. So, of course, you know, the old fashioned approach of taking a good medical history is so important. So, understanding the different aspects of a woman's menstrual bleeding is it regular? What is the duration? What is the volume? Does she consider it heavy? You know, some women may not consider their periods to be heavy, but their hemoglobin reflects anemia and they just are normalizing their period, as you mentioned before. So I think understanding all of the, the aspects of menstrual bleeding is important, but those other associated symptoms, whether it's pelvic pain, bulk symptoms, change in urinary frequency, constipation, lower back pain, etc. All of those questions we need to ask, especially in a woman who describes her periods as potentially heavy. 
on exam, certainly if a woman's BMI is normal or just overweight, the exam can yield a lot of information with higher BMIs that can compromise uh, the clinical assessment on exam as to whether or not a woman may have uterine fibroids. So as you mentioned earlier, I absolutely agree in having a low threshold to do a transvaginal ultrasound. I don't know how many providers may have this available in their office. Um, at my center in North Carolina, we'll do an ultrasound on many people who have heavy periods, never thought they had fibroids, but as you know, much more common as women get older um, and you may not appreciate the fibroids on examination. Potentially, if you find fibroids on ultrasound, you can do something more sophisticated like a saline infused sonogram to understand if there's submucosal or what specific types of fibroids can be seen. And then certainly CT, MRI, if an ultrasound is confusing or doesn't yield the information you want, you should consider other uh, imaging modalities. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Lucas. Uh, so I, I think you covered it very well. I, I just totally agree with you uh, about using ultrasound. Sometimes when I present this in, in conferences or other venues, uh, there's a pushback about the cost if we use too much ultrasound and so on. But I really believe um, that uh, if we even look at the overall uh, healthcare system cost uh, side, it is uh, eventually is going to be uh, the cost benefit will actually be towards using uh, ultrasound more liberally, transvaginal ultrasound to diagnose fibroid. Because as we mentioned earlier, um, if you delay the diagnosis, then the disease uh, had a chance to progress more. Then there would be more invasive therapy, and and we'll talk later about these invasive therapies and potential complication with surgery and so on, and the added cost to the healthcare system because of those. So if you add all of this in kind of an economic model, I am sure liberal uh, use of transvaginal ultrasound early on will be more favorable uh, from the patient care point of view, but even economically as well and financially. Um, so I also think it would be helpful for the audience to understand the diagnosis and classification of uterine fibroids and how this translates into practice for treatment intervention and the impact on patients. Uh, we know early identification and management can prevent the progression of uterine fibroids, the need for more invasive therapy, as we just mentioned, and also allow for fertility sparing options to be utilized. But we also need to consider the importance of accurate diagnosis to inform treatment decisions like location, size, and number of fibroids. So Dr. Lucas, would you mind giving a brief overview of how uterine fibroids are classified and what this may mean for, different, for patient symptoms and therapeutic options? Certainly. So I think most in the audience are going to be familiar with terminology such as submucosal fibroids, intramural fibroids, subserosal fibroids. But there has been a push, especially within the research setting, like this is usually a part of clinical trials that research uterine fibroids with the classification as shown here on the slide that shows submucosal fibroids in orange, and you have zero, one, and two, zero being pedunculated, one meaning more than 50% within the cavity, 
to being less than 50% in the cavity. So these are often the fibroids that we will address hysteroscopically with resection. And then the other, the, uh, the classification goes up to eight. And you can see here that the rest are two through five are different variations of intramural, intramural and then six and seven get closer to the, sub, uh, the serosa. So they're eight, but it starts with zero. So the numbers end in seven. So I do think these are useful in terms of a research setting. I'd be curious what you think if many private practitioners or clinicians are using such classifications. No, I totally agree with you. I think this is probably more used in the realm of clinical research to be able to compare, you know, apples mm -hmm. to apples and oranges to oranges. But in everyday life, even in, you know, radiology reports and so on, uh, I think uh, most of radiologists and, and gynecologists, ultrasonographers used what you said earlier, submucosal, intramural, and subserosal. So like three big categories. Also, the tendency is to measure the size of the biggest three. And, and if there are more than three, and that's, as you know, very common, uh, then they don't measure. They just say additional fibroids were visible right. or something like that. I, I agree. I agree. And, uh, and so I have, yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think uh, this is a very nice comprehensive coverage. I, I was just uh, want to do a quick segue towards the treatment side. Uh, and we'll talk, we'll touch a little bit on that a little later. But the good news oh, with those new uh, FDA-approved oral GnRH antagonists, uh, I was actually part of the research team, as you were also, Dr. Lucas, uh, as, as I know. Um, it it uh, turned out that these oral GnRH antagonists um, actually are effective against all different kinds of fibroids. So after we completed the original assessment, we did what they call subgroup analysis. So we looked at the response in uh, submucosal or type 0 to, to 2, and then intramural, and then the subserosal, and, and looked if there's a difference in the response based on the location, and there was not. So all different types of fibroid, FIGO 0 to 7, or uh, submucosal, intramural, and subserosal responded appropriately. We also did subgroup analysis by uh, size, and also uh, all sizes uh, of fibroid and all sizes of uterii, uh, also responded favorably. So that's good news, which probably would be a bit different when we think about invasive procedure and surgery, where the location and the size really makes a difference on which approach, uh, as you mentioned, Dr. Lucas, hysteroscopic versus, you know, uh, open versus laparoscopic versus robotic assisted, etc. And, and the only thing probably I, I would say on the classification before we move to the next point is um, uh, this is absolutely what we have now in clinical practice. I think we all agree that uh, the system is useful and helpful, but it's not ideal. For example, none of the things we talked about in terms of location and so on uh, really reflect the biology of the disease. It's just a simple location. Um, there is uh, research uh, ongoing in our team and others as well of looking at the stiffness, the stiffness of the fibroid, how stiff actually the fibroid. And luckily now we can measure this non-invasively using a special kind of ultrasound called shear wave elastography, shear wave elastography or, or SWE, which tell you actually if this fibroid is very stiff or, or soft or less stiff. 
And it turns out the stiffer the fibroid, the more aggressive they are in terms of growth rate, they grow faster, et cetera. So, because it factor in the biology of the disease. So this is still in the realm of research. So this is not part of clinical practice yet, but hopefully with additional research, this uh, hopefully can move into uh, standard clinical practice and with the current system together, hopefully uh, uh, improve the classification and, and improve the information we get from ultrasound so we can serve our patient better. Um, so since we start uh, by talking about treatment options, Dr. Lucas, I think it's important we take a deeper dive into the current clinical treatment guidelines. I would like to remind the audience if they are interested in learning more about a specific oral or surgical treatment options, they may also access our program, the HPO, uh, hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis, and the estrogen threshold hypothesis in uterine fibroids, paving the way for novel treatment. In this particular snack, specific treatments and the risk versus benefit are explored, and especially when considering the estrogen threshold hypothesis and examining agents like the GnRH antagonists that target a therapeutic window between 20 and 50 picogram uh, per mil of estradiol to decrease estrogen while not eliminating it completely. So Dr. Lucas, would you please walk the audience through the clinical guidelines for expectant, complementary, and medication management? Certainly. So I think, you know, once you have the diagnosis made, a woman comes to see you with different symptoms and you've determined she has uterine fibroids. So what are the next steps? So expectant management um, really is no treatment. And some women, despite having several symptoms, um, once you understand the reason why they have the symptoms, even though the provider may be leaning towards intervention, some women may elect to not do anything. You know, if they're anemic, you could give them iron. But in some instances, just knowing why someone is having the symptoms is enough for that individual patient. And I, I think that's important to recognize as a provider that we don't have to do something, particularly if someone is relatively healthy and not anemic. In terms of medical management, we have here a number of things listed. Very few though are FDA approved for the management of uterine fibroids. Certainly non-steroidals can help with dysmenorrhea or pelvic pain associated with uh, bleeding and fibroids. The reduction in bleeding is pretty minimal. It's not much more than 10 or 15%. Combined oral contraceptives, something that we are all very used to prescribing and have used for a long time. They've been approved for almost 60 years here in the US none indicated for fibroid specific heavy menstrual bleeding. And as you know, many individuals who have fibroids may have abnormal bleeding on oral contraceptives, but if a woman needs contraception and it controls her bleeding, that's very appropriate selection. And approximately 50% of reduction of her bleeding can be seen. The progestins, in particular, the levonorgestrel intrauterine system, really good at reducing bleeding, particularly studied in women that have normal uteruses. When you look at the studies on label, they excluded fibroids, but 
practically speaking, many of us try using the uh, levonorgestrel containing systems to control bleeding, and I think they can work well. Particularly, you don't you can't have those fibroids that distort the cavity, or otherwise the device may not stay where it's supposed to. Tranexamic acid, I'm a big fan of tranexamic acid. The clinical trials leading to the approval did include a large portion of women that had fibroids and it worked as well. So this is a non-hormonal therapy that a woman takes just during your heavy days, but this can also reduce bleeding. But again, you're hovering around that 40 to 50% reduction in bleeding. The selective progesterone receptor modulators, unfortunately, we don't have one available for us to use um, on a regular basis. We have that approval for emergency contraception, but the uh, ulopristal acetate did not get approval here, here in the U.S. for heavy menstrual bleeding associated with fibroids. The GNRH agonists certainly have been around for a long time, but those are considered more short-term treatments for fibroids. So the more exciting and newer class of medications is this GNRH antagonist. And I know we're going to talk about that more today with both Relagolix and Elagolix. And that's an exciting, it's an ex, they're exciting class of drugs because they can be used for a longer amount of time and they have great tolerability, really good efficacy. And I, I know we'll get into that um, in more detail. And then I will highlight the complementary or alternative therapies. I think a lot of those in our profession don't utilize this enough, but certainly with, with pain associated with fibroids, I think acupuncture can work very well. Um, there's limited evidence on the herbal remedies, but I'm always amazed with my patients that come in and they tell me the herbs that they're using and they feel that they're having benefits. So I certainly don't discount that in any way. So I think I've covered kind of the the introductions to our medical treatment. So I'll turn it back over to you. Excellent. Yeah, you you did indeed. This is a comprehensive um, you know coverage of of all the medical treatment options. So thank you so much for going over that. With so many treatment options, I would like to uh, draw the audience attention to do this visual algorithm that you see on the screen now for best practices. This algorithm can be a really helpful tool when considering strategizing treatment options. I also appreciate how in the algorithm, it encouraged provider to consider the medication therapy available, whether the patient desire fertility or not. In addition, I would like to quickly remind the audience the, of the clinical guidelines regarding surgical management as well. It always you know, strikes me, uh, I get a lot of second opinions and, and so on. Uh, in Chicago, of course, patients have many, many uh, you know, medical care options, and I see many patients in second opinion, even third uh, opinion sometimes. Um, how uh, we in, in the benign gynecology area, especially with uterine fibroid, we go straight to surgery. And, and I could understand, of course, I've been practicing for about 28 years or so. Uh, some years ago, really, we didn't have effective uh, non-surgical options. So, so it makes sense to go straight to surgery. But that has changed. So I think now I would really urge myself and my colleagues to fix that paradigm, to, to really bring fibroids now to the regular kind of paradigm in medicine. Uh, when we counsel our patient about any other disease, we always start with simple 
uh, non-invasive, so typically medical treatment options. And then only of those fails, then we go to a more invasive options, which usually in, include procedures or surgery. Uh, the paradigm in fibroid has been upsided uh, for many, many years. We talked about the reason, but with the FDA approval now uh, for the last few years for two oral uh, effective and safe long-term treatment options, uh, as Dr. Lucas mentioned, elagolics and rologolics, um, I think now we have a chance to fix or to correct this paradigm. Uh, distortion. So as you can see in the algorithm here, it's very, really self-explanatory uh, with the diagnosis of fibroid and heavy ministerial bleeding. Uh, even if, if the patient wants to preserve fertility or not, uh, of course, there's expected management. Dr. Lucas covered that very well. But if they want to uh, seek some kind of uh, treatment, I would uh, consider medical treatment uh, as, a, as a first option. And, and you have here a list of all the options, and Dr. Lucas covered this very well, but I, those are no, in no specific order. Uh, and I'm really a, a big uh, advocate for using oral GnRH antagonists as a first line of treatment because they come from large uh, phase three clinical trials and they have been uh, evaluated uh, over a long time uh, in those uh, uh, clinical research programs and found to be effective and safe and have achieved FDA approval specifically for heavy ministerial bleeding with fibroid. Really not many of the uh, list, uh, not many of the treatment on that list really can say that. The, uh, many of them have not been specifically evaluated for fibroid. And of course, if medical treatment fails, then we can consider uh, non-surgical uh, procedure treatment options. And there's a list of them here, uterine artery embolization, focus ultrasound if that's available in your center, et cetera, or surgical treatment. And even when we go to surgical treatment, there are now several uterine sparing uh, treatment options, myomectomy, but we have other options now. And of course, uh, there's hysterectomy in appropriate cases. And, and I just wanna uh, kind of finish uh, this comment uh, from my side by saying surgery, uh, yes, in good hands, in good centers, most of the time it's safe, but there's also complications. And, and I can't help mm -hmm. but think in our monthly uh, M&M sessions in our department and in any other department, I'm sure the uh, mortality and morbidity rounds where we discuss complications from surgery in the last month, there's almost always a fibroid or two uh, cases. And, and my standard questions to, to the resident presenting the case, have you considered medical treatment options first before you take the patient to surgery? And I would say almost invariably the answer is no. So uh, hysterectomy, for example, uh, have been associated with short-term, intermediate, and long-term complications. We and others have published on that, so I would refer you to those uh, for the time constraint. But uh, of course, short-term, we're all familiar with it, interoperative complication, bleeding, injury to other organs, infection, et cetera. And then short and intermediate complication, things like uh, uh, vault prolapse, urinary incontinence, et cetera. And we're all familiar with that, but relatively new thing that came in the last few years is those long-term complications. So uh, there's now high quality data from epidemiological studies comparing women who had hysterectomies in their 30s and 40s with conservation of the ovaries. So just hysterectomy, no BSO. 
versus those who didn't have hysterectomy. And when you look at them 20, 30 years later, there's increased risk of heart disease, dementia, uh, hypertension, and other metabolic disorders in those who had hysterectomy versus those who didn't. So, and the latest, uh, since we're talking about ACOG guidelines and clinical guidelines, uh, the latest ACOG guideline from June, 2021, uh, uh, recommended that we actually discuss those long-term complications when uh, we are in a session consenting our patient for surgery, especially for hysterectomy. Uh, so we'll move on to the, uh, to the next item. And Dr. Lucas, do you have any other thoughts to add here based on your practice? Well, I think you, you know, gave a fairly comprehensive approach, but I, similar to you, like to use medical interventions first. You, you know, reminded the audience of the complications that can occur with surgery. Um, we had a presentation a couple of weeks ago with something as simple as an endometrial ablation. Doesn't directly target fibroids, but can reduce menstrual bleeding. And but the patient developed a hematometra, ended up with a hysterectomy. So certainly those surgical risks encourage providers to consider medical therapies. And then what's exciting is the new GNRH antagonists. They're so well tolerated. Um, easy to prescribe, we can use them long term. Um, so that's exciting. Um, some of our other older treatments, the birth control pills, progestin only therapy, the side effects can can be worse and the efficacy not as good. So it is very exciting for us to now maybe pivot to the newer therapies and highlight the benefits that they can have. Absolutely. I 100% I agree. So, Dr. Lucas, do you have any other consideration from your own clinical practice or pearls that demonstrate enhancing patient preference, enhanced fertility preservation, and informs your clinical management process that offer less invasive strategy in the diagnosis or management of uterine fibroids? Yes. So, I think it's very important to consider the clinical management of uterine fibroids. So the minimally invasive diagnostic tests we have clearly highlight um, that we could not, the, the, one of the most common things we see in GYN, uh, but we still might have it underdiagnosed. Um, so in considering management of fibroids, I like to think of minimally invasive therapeutics, medical therapies, et cetera. You see a large number of women who don't want to have a hysterectomy. I, of course, am in the, the southeastern region of the United States, and this is kind of the highest geographical area in terms of definitive treatment and hysterectomy. But the management of fibroids really does need to encompass kind of a shared decision with your patient and understanding the symptoms that bother them the most. Are there fertility requirements? Do they wanna have more children? Do they not? Their bone health in terms of different medical treatments. But again, patient preference to me is so important. My, my um, initial conversations with a woman who is complaining of heavy menstrual bleeding or pelvic pressure or pain, the different symptoms 
that we see with fibroids is to really educate her about all of the treatment options, whether they're medical, whether they're procedural, whether they're definitive. Um, it's important to kind of give her an understanding of all of her options. And I think that can begin a dialogue that is important to have as you understand what in particular your one patient may desire the most. Absolutely. I, I love what you just said at the end there. That's how I approach my patient as well. I, I tell them my job here is not to decide for you. My job is to offer you the information and mm -hmm. ask and, and answer your question. Then you decide. If you decide right. for medical therapy, I'll prescribe for you. Uh, if you decide to go for surgery, uh, then I'll be the technician doing the surgery. But uh, because I'm sure you get the same and most doctors, uh, well, what would you do if I were your sister or your wife or, or you know, uh, when I was younger, if I was your mother, <laughs> uh, what would you do? <laughs> what yeah. would you do? And I never fall into that. I said, no, I, I will not uh, make a decision for you. I, I'm happy to sit here, answer your question as long as you want, but you will have you will have to decide. So I, I totally I love your approach, doctor, to this doctor. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you, Dr. Lucas. I would uh, like to remind the audience that if they are interested in learning more about addressing patient preferences and practice to access our program, enhancing the value of choice for clinical management of uterine fibroids through shared decision making. This program also uh, can help inform our audience to improve their understanding of the FDA-approved treatment options and expand patient treatment choices beyond invasive surgical options like hysterectomy. Uh, so I would like to summarize today's discussion by walking through our SMART goals. A SMART stands for Specific, Measurable, Attainable, Relevant, and Timely. So this is what I hope that we uh, and you will take away from this presentation to apply to your practice. One, identify gaps in care management of uterine fibroids. Two, integrate clinical management guidelines for uterine fibroids into practice while considering fertility. Three, consider available treatment options for management of uterine fibroids while preserving patient preference uh, for consider minimally invasive diagnostic and therapeutics option for the management of uterine fibroids. I would like to encourage everyone to visit the CMEO Virtual uh, Education Hub, which provides free resources and education for healthcare professionals and patients on uterine fibroids, including uh, the other programs in this specific series. The CMEO SNAC is one of a four-part series that is continuous uh, initiative to reinforce personalized care for uterine fibroids, update practices, and improve patient outcome. We hope that you will take advantage and participate in all of the activities in this series. The choice to format the activity as a series has been made to deliver key points in shortened and time-sensitive format for the professional learner. In addition, by delivering contents in the series, you, the audience, have the opportunity to hear from multiple key opinion leaders in this space, so please be sure to access all of the program to optimize learning. The other topics we will cover include understanding the impact of uterine fibroids, looking at the HPO, again, uh, hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis, and the estrogen threshold hypothesis in relation to the novel treatment for uterine fibroids, and incorporating um, uh, shared decision-making 
into practice to enhance the value of choice for our patient with uterine fibroids. I would like to thank you so much, Dr. Andrew Lucas, for teaching us so much today and for uh, such a great conversation. I hope our audience have learned a lot about guiding the clinical management of uterine fibroids. Absolutely, and let me thank you, uh, Dr. Alhendi, for uh, including me in today's discussion. You are truly one of the world's expert on uterine fibroids, so it's always a pleasure, and um, thank you everyone for joining us this time. The pleasure is all mine, Dr. Lucas. I also want to sincerely thank you, the audience, for your commitment to continuing your education on uterine fibroids. Together, we can strive to provide the best care for our patients who have this, unfortunately, very common condition. To receive credit for this activity, please complete the post-test and evaluation. We very much appreciate your feedback. I wanna hear from you, the audience. Please tell us what you like and also how can we uh, continue to improve and what additional topics you would like us to address in the future program. Thank you so much.